You're listening to Four at the Back with Joe, Pete, Maz and Neil. From the Playboys and Provocateurs to Tiki Taka to Gagan Pressing, we'll be looking at some of our favourite cult sides and players from down the years. Shaky on the facts but heady with nostalgia, this is the football podcast you've been waiting for. So finish up your pre-match stretches and go with Four at the Back. things that i've noticed about football over the years is that we always end up or it always seem to end up with big hitters taking on each other and i think that's why it's so special when somebody that you're not expecting really kicks the doors in and challenges in a way that you you're not always expecting we've already had a look at leicester city in our first season who really did that in a way that we haven't seen in the premier league era in domestic football but in the 1990s we had a similar story going on with Borussia Dortmund. Now, they hadn't really had any success at all in the the Bundesliga era until they appointed Otmar Hitzfeld as the manager in the early 1990s. And then they went on a tear and had their real golden era. I think they were probably helped at some level by some turmoil at Bayern Munich that saw them not as dominant as they had been in the 1980s. But at the same time, this Hitzfeld team were a remarkable side that contributed great entertainment to the Bundesliga and dom- as and to the German national team in Euro 96. And they also ha- capped it all for people of, of my age by replicating that success in the Champions League, which was where we saw so much of their, uh, their good work. Now, I'm a little bit younger than you guys. I just want to start off. Did you see too much of the title winning teams the the years before this Champions League winning season or were you as kind of uh, invested in the European stuff as as I was Um, yeah this is I, I wasn't a big follower of uh, of uh, the German league uh, back then so you know I was aware of it but it it wasn't something I watched a whole great deal of so it, it was it was ma- mainly their, their European outings that that I was watching and you know they were interesting team to follow there yeah because they, they they mean sort of they made the uh, knockout stage of the Champions League. Um, in 95, 96, which I think is probably, you know, the first time that Dortmund as a club were like very prominently something that you were aware of as an English football fan. Because obviously, I mean, we know now what a massive club it is, what a massive following they have. Um, The Yellow Wall, um, you know, their roots in... Uh, northern industrial Rhineland Germany, their massive rivalry with Schalke, massive rivalry with Gladbach. But, you know, if you look in the 70s in German football, it was Gladbach, it was Bayern. Um, if you go back further than that, um, it's teams that, that we don't even really exist anymore, like Rottweiss Essen, who were incredibly successful, and Kaiserslautern with a big club for a long time in German football. So... Um, you know, Dortmund, as you say, almost went down in, uh, I think, 1984. They almost went down, won the relegation playoff 
to stay up. We're in terrible financial difficulty through the 1980s and Hitzfeld um, completely transformed them. Interestingly, they'd always be in the Bundesliga. They were found a member of the Bundesliga. But I suppose it's a bit like, you know, um, clubs in English football who stay in the, the top division for years and years and ends without necessarily winning lots of trophies. And that was Dortmund really until Hitzfeld came along. And so, yeah, 95-96, they, um, they actually lost to Ajax in the quarters um, that season when Ajax went on to play the final against Juve. Um, and then, of course, 96-97 is where they have uh, their run all the way to the final and, and beat Juve. And the year after, they go all the way to the semi-finals. Um, and as, as, as Pete said at the outset, you know, you've also got them contributing some very key players to Germany's um, winning Euro 96 side. So uh, they, they loomed pretty large in our imagination, you know, watching ITV on a Tuesday or a Wednesday night, you know, it was always, um, almost always you had to just watch whatever uh, team the English teams were playing. But once the English teams were out, then you got the good stuff. I think that's probably why I didn't see so much of them in, in 95, 96 as well, because they uh, went out to Ajax fairly early on and, and the German league didn't have the, the sex appeal of the Italian league. So we weren't seeing quite as much as we were of, of Serie A. So that that's what, why, for me, the the real introduction to a lot of this team came in Euro 96. Um, and I suppose just to introduce a couple of names to the, to the equation straight off the bat, the two that really stood out for me at that tournament uh, as a very young football fan were uh, Matthias Sammer and Andreas Moller, uh, both of this Dortmund team. Yeah, I mean, you, if you if you want to talk about the the stars, if you like, of a of a team, you're, you're looking at those two. Samuel was amazing in Euro '96. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, he was. I've forgotten about that. He was, you know, such a beautiful player to watch. You know, as a sweeper, and you know, he he's in in that German style where he, you know. He spent some time in front of the defence, spent some time behind the defence, um, you know, shifted back a little bit over the career, over his career. But, you know, essentially what he was doing is pretty much the same role. And that, that's controlling the game from deep, which um, he did so well. And I mean, my, my favourite thing about Dortmund is uh, at this time, Hitzfeld's Dortmund was, was their formation, which is something I love to to today um it, it's all pretty much or near as damn it the formation i actually play on fifa right now so you know there's something about it that i love i love the way it works and for a workman-like team it, it, it's it's perfect because you, you you just have players that can fit in uh move around uh like like, like a puzzle piece but then what you've got in that team you, you've got um Sammer playing the sweeper role, you know, controlling the game from there. And the other player uh, who who Pete mentioned is is Andy Boller, who's, you know, a, as close to a free role as you'll get in, in a system like that. But that's where all the flair is coming from. And Moller had been a fantastic player for years, for absolute years, a, jo- a joy to watch whenever you watch the World Cup or a Euro or we're seeing that those German teams come through. Just fantastic talent. 
I think is it fair to say it's the quintessential German formation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, that, yeah, the interesting thing about the sort of, I guess nowadays you'd call it a 3-5-2, wouldn't you? It's, it's kind of more like a 1-2-2-3-1, uh, <laughs> almost. It's kind of, it's quite a, it's it's, it's a little bit um, different in the, the, this, you know, obviously the sweeper both sat back and went forward. Interestingly, Chelsea, when they had Rud Hullet, were playing that formation under Glenn Hoddle. And then as soon as Hoddle went to manage England, they kind of abandoned it and, and, and stuck uh, Hullet back in the midfield. Um, but uh, it, it is very much the, uh, the German formation of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And then, you know, once they kind of uh, went out of Euro 2000 early doors with a, you know, 41 or 42-year-old Lerther Mateus very much showing his age, in that position that's when you get them um you know go to a much more modern high press style under um under Klinsman with kind of you know Yogi Love really is the tactical mastermind then Love taking them on after that all the way to World Cup glory in 2014 but Sammer was an interesting player because uh he actually was it was the first prominent eastern european player uh sorry eastern east german player to uh, make an impact on the kind of unified German national team after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, he played for the German Democratic Republic at every like youth age group. Um, and I think he even played a few games for the East German national side before unification. So like, while the West German side of, you know, Voller, Klinsmann, Moller, um, Thomas Hessler and so on were, uh, were winning the 1990 World Cup in Italy. Uh, Sammer was actually captaining East Germany. Um, so it, it's, it's a, a very interesting thing that happens between 1990, 1996 that uh, Matthias gets a few bad injuries and Sammer basically takes his, his position in the team and ends up kind of being the, uh, the leader and the fulcrum in year 96 and um, then Sammer gets some bad injury problems and, and Mateus gets his, his place back, kind of having a bit of a late career flourish at Bayern. Um, so very, very interesting times in that kind of, you know, sweeper role, free role that they played. And of course, Moller, you know, you'd probably say he was at his peak um, at, at the World Cup in 1990. That was probably his best football. But I mean, he remained a brilliant footballer through that whole time. Um, a thorn in England's side. I mean, who can forget his his pose um, after he scored the winning penalty in that Euro '96 semi-final? <laughs> like this kind of, you know, he was he was such an arrogant footballer in such a brilliant way. He had that supreme German self-confidence that that those 1990s teams had. Um, and you know, yeah, he, he could see a pass. He had a had a goal in him. Um, very skillful, quick. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant footballer. Very intelligent as well. Just thinking about uh, Zama again for a minute before uh, coming on to, to Mola, it's always interested me that he went out to Italy and obviously there's no room for a uh, sweeper of his sort, that very Beckenbauer-esque figure in the Italian systems in the 1990s and he fails to settle and it's only actually when he moves to Dortmund that Hitzfeld turns him into that sweeper Beckenbauer, Matthias-esque figure, and obviously he manages to make him the most important player, both for Dortmund and 
uh, and the German national team. So quite a decent buy, I think it's fair to say. As for Moller, just quickly, is there anything he couldn't do? Because I've just been watching some of this stuff back lately to refresh my memory about some of it. And it's just every type of goal he was scoring and doing. There's these long-range thunder bastards, and he's heading it like he's Tim Cahill. And there's cheeky little chips and dinks and, like, bending the ball around the wall. There's so much kind of spin on it. It seemed like there wasn't anything he couldn't do. No, definitely a, a, an all-round player. You know, he's not a small guy as well. You know, he, he's quite a big, you know, quite tall, but he plays, often plays like a smaller guy. So w- when you've got players like that, you know, y- you think they're a little guy based on, you know, their ball control on, on, on the floor. But like you say, he can he can tuck away a header as well. You know, it, it's an all-round attacker, absolutely all-round attacker. He's the type of player, you know, as much as you want him in that in that free role, you could stick him anywhere in an attacking position and he'd do a job for you. Wonderful player. And, you know, he kind of just... He was a leader, you know. He was a, you know, the thing about that Dortmund team is it was full of leaders, you know. Um, Sammer, leader. Moller, leader. Riedler, leader. <laughs> Paul Lambert, leader. Paolo uh, Sosa leader, you know, they were just, they had so much kind of um, character, to use Brandon Rogers' favourite words. Um, and Hitzfeld, of course, you know, was very much this kind of um, taciturn, strict, you know, uh, trench coat wearing, very traditional football manager. Um, I guess, I mean, he's kind of, he always felt to me a bit like the German Alex Ferguson, but maybe without some of the unpleasant mind games. But he just he just kind of had that aura about him. And I was watching back uh, a little documentary they made um, a few years ago about the 97 uh, Champions League win. And he says, you know, uh, a football manager doesn't need to say anything to uh, to players that, you know, that have the right character and have the right motivation. If anything, you should be quiet in the dressing room, remind them of their responsibilities, and then they go out on the pitch and perform. And that's what that Dortmund side were like. I mean, in the quarterfinals um, that year, they knock out Man United uh, with a 1-0 and a 1-0. So they basically just, you know, George Graham Arsenal, that great Man United side with, you know, Beckham and Skulls and everybody starting to come into their peak and Cantona's last season. Um, and they just basically muzzle them. Like, United don't get a sniff in those two games. Uh, I mean, you know, a player we've not talked about there is is Kohler, who was fucking amazing in those games. You know? Yeah. That's my abiding my memory. Absolute is. rock. And again, a 1990 World Cup veteran. I mean, Jan Kohler in, in, you know, in the World Cup in 1990, um, him and Klaus Algenthaler had a, a, a formidable partnership at the back um and he was just uh, he was just such a top class centre-half for years and years and years he was kind of you know quite short for a centre-half but so hard and just you know times tackle so well i was just uh saying there just agreeing with you Maz that uh, my abiding memory of those Man United games is just the sheer number of blocks that Cola made across the course of it and Significantly, I suppose we could add that he's one of many players in this side who would sign from uh, Juventus, which goes on to be quite relevant at the end of this season. 
Yeah, it's interesting that the Bundesliga obviously, you know, probably um, of the, you know, of the kind of main leagues, if you like, they were kind of probably fourth in the pecking order at this time. Um, and lots of German players were going out to Italy, um, particularly. Um, I don't think many of them really came to the Premier League at this time. I think, you know, Riedler and a few, a few others, Dietmar Hamann come a few years later, but... Um, it was certainly the case that a lot of the best German footballers were going to Syria. I mean, famously, in the three foreigner era, Inter had Andy Bremer, um, Lerth Mateus, um, and I think Andy Muller as well. Uh, Muller was at Juve, wasn't he? Was he? Was he? No, he was at Juve. It was, oh no, it's Rudy. Rudy Voller was the other Inter player. Sorry, my bad. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, it, it was it was definitely uh, Syria the location for them. You know, very rare we we saw a, a a German in the Premier League before this. Obviously, you know, Klinsmann Klinsmann probably opened the door to it a bit more, didn't he? Really, and you know, you, you'd see a few come through then. Since then, uh, I guess at this time, did 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 you have Fr- uh, Freud at Spurs? Would that have been this point? A little bit after. Kind of a little bit after. 99-ish, I guess. But, yeah, I mean, then we'd have a few uh, Ziga coming through and uh, a few here and there. But, yeah, so certainly in 96, 97, it, it, it wasn't a lot of Germans in the uh, in, in the Premier League. And, you know, that, that was... Well, I don't think uh, very very many made it to La Liga or either, did they? It was, it was usually Italy or at home. It's interesting as well because uh, I always I always kind of um, remember that uh, around uh, around that time it was it was the case that when Serie A was in that that position of real real strength and gradually the German players did start going home because Effenberg came back to to Bayern, Matthias came back to Bayern, you know you've got these players that, that came back to Dortmund and, and so what you end up with um, is actually you know the couple of big um, German teams which I guess at this time was Bayern and, and Dortmund they started to get stronger in Europe again because of course you know Bayern would uh, have a, a really good few years in the Champions League as well um, just following this Dortmund spell where they would obviously lose to United in very dramatic fashion um, and win one as well um, and so it's it's the case that the, the Bundesliga starts to kind of build itself back up around this time and you know by the time you get into the middle 2000s it's, it's starting to get quite strong again. One thing that they were never shy of is uh, someone to stand between the posts um, you know, uh, Ildner was obviously a, a great goalkeeper and he retired in his late 20s from international football. They replace him with Kirpka, Um and then he gives way to, to Khan. And in the stream of all this, um, Dortmund's goalkeeper, like when we spoke about Rossi when we did Milan way back, Stefan Kloss, who would have been had 100 caps if he was from Luxembourg or wherever, but uh, you didn't get a look in for the national team, really. But he was a 
feature throughout the title-winning Dortmund sides and the Champions League side. And when he went to Rangers in the late 1990s, they spent, a, a, if I'm remembering right, quite a packet to take him there. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's like how we discussed with the centre-halves in, in the Premiership at some point. You know, I guess we're talking about a time where, you know, every top team in Germany had a German goalkeeper or uh, there or thereabouts and uh, the competition was just that that much more tough for that first uh, you know for that number one uh, shirt and you you had a lot of good goalkeepers you know vying for that position didn't you it's still even then you could say it's a surprise that he he never want to see near cap by the looks of it but yeah very good very good career won a lot of stuff you know, it's, it's, it's interesting with Dortmund because, you know, not only did that happen with Kloss, it also happened with Roman Weidenfeller as well. So the great Klopp teams, Weidenfeller was was terrific for those teams and everything that Jurgen Klopp needed out of a goalkeeper, you know. But if, you, if your career coincides with, um, you know, with Manuel Neuer, then you're not going to be getting many games for Germany. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about that fact that, that Dortmund have had those good keepers um, that haven't necessarily been able to make it into Germany's national setup. Yeah, I, I remember just when we were speaking about Rossi, it was the, just thinking in the back of my head. Yeah, obviously I made the joke there about Luxembourg, but if he was, if he'd been French, let's say, he probably would have had quite a few caps, Rossi. Um, uh, just how many sides would Klaus have got into is, is that kind of question. Uh, he was one of the few players in this side not to play for the national team. It was a star-studded lineup. One of the other names that does fly under the radar, I suppose, was Kohler's centre-back partner. It was um, Martin Cree, who doesn't make a huge number of appearances compared with uh, someone like Kohler who plays throughout the 1990s, but uh, very useful in that Champions League winning season. They didn't let in many goals. I mean, I think that's the thing about Dortmund uh, that year. In fact, again, on the documentary, they have a very extensive interview with Karl-Heinz Riedler, and he says um, when he scored the header to put them 2-0 up, um, so Riedler scores the first two goals in that final, and he says, you know, we knew we were a very good defensive team and they weren't likely to come back from 2-0 down. And he said this calm just settled on them because they were going in half-time 2-0 up and they were so convinced they'd win the game because they knew that they knew that they were very solid defensively despite playing a team who had, you know, Christian Vieri, Alan Boxic, Zinedine Sedan and Alex Del Piero like gunning for them. They felt so secure about seeing the game out. You know, I mean, that, that's some serious confidence, but, you know, that that's that's a team that's playing well. That's a team that, uh, you know, champions uh, of your country and, and on a run in, in in the Champions League, you know, you know, the confidence was definitely up in that team. And with the system they had, with the players they had, they, they felt invincible. It's don't care if you're Zidane and, you know, I mean, you know, this is this is. This is pre World Cup '98 Zidane, so he's not not quite the enigma that he would be. But you know, that's not to say he was an average player by any stretch of the imagination. He was, he, he was probably he was, the best player in Europe that season. I mean, he had, that '96 '97. I think he was was one of his best seasons in Serie A, at least. Um, yeah, 
this is where he was really coming coming to the fore. And, you know, like you say, you name those players, you know, Del Piero. Imagine having to deal with just Del Piero or Zidane, you know. You've you got to deal with both. You, you know, you've got that typical Juventus defence at the back that, you know, Riedler's managed to, to, to take on twice. And, you know, you've got, you know, strikers like Vieri and Boxic but you know it's interesting they shut out United home and away so they have every right to be confident in their in what they're doing at the back and it did seem from uh you know from everything I've seen from from interviews with the players they were very annoyed Dortmund at being labeled big underdogs I guess Juve, purely for name value, you know, were heavy favourites with the bookies. You know, they were reigning European champions. You know, they'd beaten Ajax in that epic penalty shootout um, the year before, that amazing Ajax team with Finidi George and Kleiber and, um, you know, the De Boers and everybody else. Um, and so, and also Serie A, I remember, was on TV for us every Sunday on Channel 4. So everyone was really familiar with this Juve team and, and it was very much, oh, yeah, Juve are hot favourites. And all the interviews with the Dortmund players you know, say, we were annoyed. We felt disrespected by that. And, and uh, we were very confident that, that we matched up really well with Juve. Um, and they play then an interview with Deschamps, um, not known as the most humble player, Didier Deschamps, um, famously described by Kanzner as a water carrier, which is one of my favourite insults ever. Um, and Deschamps says, oh, yeah, it's right that we're favourites. You know, we've won a lot. We deserve to be. And that's the kind of attitude that Dortmund were going in there to, uh, to take out. Um, and Paul Lambert, in the same interview, says that the team bus was completely quiet on the way to the ground. Just had this sense of serenity that they just knew what they were going there to do, which is, you know, really really interesting I think mentality in football is I think as we've seen many times like incredibly important but you know like you say it goes back to having so many leaders in in that team you know so much experience people that are that have you know boss teams you've got you know five six players that would would walk in and captain any any club in the world in there you know and you know Lambert has as a manager in his later years, must have taken so much from, I mean, how long did, was he even there? A couple of seasons, if that? A year and a couple of months. He leaves for Celtic in like, the following November after this this year. Uh, and it's, he's one of the early examples of the great Bosman pickup because he'd been in a, a part of the Motherwell side that had uh, finished above, I want to say above Celtic, uh, a couple of years before until they... Um, until Dortmund pick him up on a free. And yeah, he's, he's, it's a year or so, and he makes such a huge impact that they give him a great farewell when he does leave for Celtic. But it's it's not a long spell at all. I, I mean, yeah, yeah I was just going to say, I mean, you know, Paul Lambert, he really is the interesting story, you know, from from a British perspective in, in this whole team. You've got this team full of, you know, German masterminds, you know, uh, Swiss striker, to, to mix it up a bit and then you, you you've got this Scottish you know central defensive midfielder who's you know 
having a little spell with the European champions between Celtic and Motherwell. It's a a time when Celtic were a much bigger deal than they are today, to be fair. It was kind of when Celtic and Rangers would comfortably have gone into the Premier League and probably competed for top five at that time. Um, You know, I think it's it's a very different Scottish Premiership. and And I think him going home to Celtic, I suppose, made sense to him. Wouldn't make much sense to us today if I was playing for Dortmund now and Celtic said, hey, come and play against, you know, these jabronis, I'd probably like say no, but a um, little bit different, a little bit different back then. But still, yeah, you'd expected, you might have expected Lambert to stay a bit longer. Yeah, I mean, we are, we're, we're talking in the era where, you know, Gaza and Loudra put Rangers, um, you know, probably uh, was, was Larson at Celtic yet yeah, or yeah. about to be. De Canio was you know. Celtic. Yeah, oh, when the ball hits the net, if it's not George Cadet, it's Di Canio. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah so you're, the, yeah. We're, we're talking a lot, a lot of good players, a lot of players who who were making waves on the international scene. It was still a big deal to play for one of the big clubs in Scotland. And he was brought in as part of that side that one of the final pieces, I suppose you could say, of the side that ended that nine on the bounce for Rangers. That might have had an appeal if you were a Celtic fan. Yeah, which I think he was. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Like Lambert is kind of, I guess as a manager, he's dying out on his success as a player a little bit, hasn't he? I mean, he's had promising spells in some places, but it's almost always turned quite bad in the end and has been accused of playing quite a lot of negative football. Um, You know, I know an Ipswich fan who's absolutely fuming at the moment at how Ipswich are playing, for example. Uh, So it's, it's certainly... Certainly interesting to think about how his success as a player has has, has kind of um, allowed him maybe a few more managerial jobs than he might otherwise have got, given the kind of relative lack of success he's had as a manager. Um, I guess you would know more about that than anyone, Pete. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a little bit. Uh, we're in some ways the ones who kind of ruined him, I think, because <laughs> it, 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 it was such a horrible situation to be in and he didn't seem to know much of a way out of it. But I think back to when he was at Norwich and if anything, they weren't negative. They were recklessly open, uh, very different from kind of how he played. And I, that was part of the reason we were so thrilled to have him in. He had this great reputation coming in and for kind of having a go and being quite attacking. But after the first season with us, where Benteke really kind of hit the ground running, we had another year and a half of it where it was pretty grim. And he never seems to have recovered from from Villa in that regard. But yeah, you wonder if he does get the jobs because people remember he's the guy who put that cross in for Karl-Heinz Riedler interesting here what, what I didn't realise is he, he he actually played against Dortmund for Motherwell in the UEFA Cup in 94-95 so yeah, they, they were flying Motherwell they really yeah, were that, that, they had a really good season but I wonder if it's a bit like uh, uh, the old uh, Cristiano Ronaldo to United situation yeah, I'm just yeah just, just imagining uh, Muller and 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 Hitzfeld after the game say, right, we, we need we need that CDM from uh, from Motherwell. Well, that was Salah. Uh, well, you know, it could Chelsea. well have done that. Like when Salah went to Chelsea, it's because he had absolutely ripped them to pieces playing for Basel. And so they sign Salah, and then of course he does nothing at Chelsea, and then they they flog him off to Fiorentina. 
and then uh, before you know it, he's uh, playing really well for Roma, and he's at Liverpool, and then he's scoring those goals against Chelsea. So I guess it, uh, I guess it uh, should be a bit more patience really on that one for Chelsea. Mm. The, in the Lambert thing, when he decided he was going to leave Motherwell and test the Bosman market and see what he could get, there were two European sides that were said to be interested in him, and the other one was PSV. And they were the first ones kind of in. But the idea was that they wanted a winger. And it was kind of, well, I'm not a winger. And it was this back and forth of, well, do you think you could be a winger? And eventually nothing came of it because, well, can you imagine him playing on the wing for in that Dutch league where wingers are very important and it, they know exactly how to, to fit that system? Because it's an institution in, in the Netherlands, isn't it? Uh, that 4-3-3. But... So yeah, they didn't take a chance on him. Dortmund did, and look, uh, look, he ended up playing next to Paulo Souza in the Champions League final for them and getting an assist. It's a, it is a remarkable story. It's it's probably the most intriguing bit because because it's got that you know from not rags to riches exactly. It's quite insulting to Motherwell, but you know it just the, you don't expect to see him there in amongst some of those other names. I guess Lambert played for Scotland in the Euro '96 and World Cup '98, so. He was one of their higher pro, pro, uh, profile players, I would have, I probably would say at the time. But yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, he he says in that video as well, um, the documentary that um, they actually looked at videos of Juve and saw that they didn't defend the back post very well, and that's why he put up that diagonal ball for the for the second. Uh, was it for the first goal? I think it was for the first goal. Um, and you know that that kind of it worked out exactly as they as they said it would. It, it's quite crazy as well when when you say next to him was uh, Paulo Sosa. So you know we're talking about a team that champions of of um, Germany. You know they got to the quarterfinals the year before, so they're in a very strong position. And suddenly they've got this new axis. Uh, you know, this year in in Paolo Sosa and and Lambert, both of whom are gone again within pretty much short amount of time. But you know, that's led them all the way to the Champions League final and uh, and won it, which is quite amazing when you when you consider, you know, a lot of teams will be built around that position, and you know, that that will be the first brick in the wall if if you like and here they here they've just you know they've bought in Paolo Sosa from Juventus they bought in Lambert from Motherwell which when you say it like that again no disrespect to Motherwell is quite funny and they've just plonked them in right in the middle here among, among you know a strong defence you know Sammer controlling from the back Moller controlling from the top you know two very good forwards in in, in in Riedler and uh, and Shapuisa. but you know they're there. They're they're the engine. You know they're the engine room of, of these Champions League winners, and you know between them they've not even got hundred caps for the club. And you know they've both gone on to have rather questionable careers in management in in England as well. So it's uh, it's quite interesting. I mean, Paolo, when when you look at that, Paolo Sosa is uh, I think a fascinating character as well because. Um, you know, obviously uh, played really, really well for Juve in that time period where he was over there. Um, played very well for Milan when he, he went into Milan when he went back from Dortmund. Um, but he was part of the the original golden generation 
the Portuguese golden generation that, that, that basically never won anything. Um, and, you know, that was the generation of Rui Costa, of, uh, of um, Paulo Futra, of uh, uh, Jao Pinto. Jao Pinto, Sapinto. Yeah, Abel Xavier, you know, this, this, that team, Ego. that team that got to uh, the semi-finals of Euro 2000, having not qualified uh, for World Cup 94 and not qualified for World Cup 98, not done very well at Euro 96. And so it was this, you know, Louis, Fig- Louis Figo, of course, being the, um, I guess, the uh, the most high profile of all, left him out almost. <laughs> but uh, it was a, a tremendous bunch of, of, of talent that Portugal had at that time um, and he was obviously the uh, the enforcer of them and a very beautiful man to boot <laughs> very male what? male model wasn't he is that why everyone kicked him and he was kind of undone by injuries because uh, just jealousy i mean yeah he looked like he looked like um yeah, he looked like Rick Martel, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Even now, he's got that silver fox thing going on, hasn't he? So, yeah, yeah, tremendous holding midfields though, and the fact they had those two sitting midfield players did allow uh, Andy Muller to go off and do his thing, and you know, for the two um, the two wing backs uh, to bomb up and down, um, and of course, I mean, we've not really talked about Stefan Chapuisin yet, and I, and I wanted to. Because I think sometimes the English um, football fans, they kind of remember him as not being much cop because of that awful opening game between Switzerland and England at Euro 96. Does anyone watch that game when they put it on TV again, like last summer? Yes. Awful. Yes. <laughs> I remember it being bad at the time, but truly, truly terrible game of football. And I remember the, sweet, the, the Swiss strikers and all the pre-tournament magazines Got really, Turkle Mass. Yeah, they got really talked up like Turkle Mass and, and Shaprisa. And then they basically had this complete damp squib of a tournament. And I think people just kind of wrote him off as being like, overrated. But yeah, Shaprisa was a really clever footballer and, and did very well in the Bundesliga, um, you know, during that time period and uh, did a lot of hard running, you know. I mean, obviously, Riedler was your pure target man and Shaprisa did a lot of running off, off the back of him, swapping positions with Muller. Um, so he was very important to that Dortmund team. And then, of course, they had Lars Ricken um, on the bench who came on in that final to score an exquisite chip over Angelo Perezzi. Literally, for, like his first touch of the game as well, wasn't he? He'd literally just come on. 16 seconds, it was a record. Proper super fastest, fastest goal by And at that time, he was a proper young talent, wasn't he? He was... How old was he when he scored that goal? He... Oh, he's still a teenager uh, at that point. I, I think he was early twenties, but he wouldn't by much. You know, twenty-one maybe. Yeah, twenty twenty-one. So he'd been twenty-one when he scored that goal, and he was, you know, really being touted as an exciting player. He scored, he scored one of the goals against United, didn't he, as well? Yeah. And mm-hmm. just a beautiful finisher of a of a footballer of a football, and yeah, I guess one of those players that. that Never quite hit the heights you, you expected at that point, but you, you can never take away that goal from him. Injuries again. That's another thing. And, and also, I guess, you know, um, Germany discovered Miroslav Closer uh, not too long after this, and he ends up obviously being that number nine for Germany for 
well. Is he still the number nine for Germany? <laughs> it feels like he is. He's, probably, he's, probably, he's actually um, one of this, this uh, one of Lerb's assistant coaches now, and it's a bit like, you know, Germany don't have a number nine. Like stick him on, he can still hold the ball up. Got all those number <laughs> like got more number tens than you can shake a stick at. They've not got a number nine. Yeah, I mean, it's a di- it's a dying thing, isn't it? Really, in football these days. Yeah, he's such a good player, a soft player. But we'll do it. We'll do that episode another time. Um, yeah, I think you know the the fact that um, again, Hitzfeld says that he'd said to Ricken, "Have you noticed Perutzi keeps rushing out a goal? You should probably try and chip him." <laughs> and then the first touch he gets, Perutzi's out a goal and he chips him. One of those ones. Not sure how true uh, Hitzfeld's being there. So yeah, Ricken, I don't think ever actually, because he just again, it's, it, I suppose it's more of a tragedy we think sometimes when attacking players who can do like those goals that he did against Man United and that that long finish against uh, Peruzzi. It's more of a tragedy when they get kicked out of the game. But he never hits more than six in a season after this, uh, which is quite sad considering how. I don't know if it you guys, but you you always had an eye on him after that goal. If you. Uh, he was always my go-to. I'd always try and sign him in Championship Manager back yeah. in the day. It was always right. I'm getting Ricken. Uh, it's just, I guess, I, I guess he was the uh, Mario Goza of his of his time. I mean, he went to, I mean, he went to the 2002 uh, World Cup, um, but he didn't get a game um, in that kind of run to the final. He didn't actually get on the pitch, I don't think. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, at least Goza, a nice scorer score a goal in the World Cup final, even if maybe... Well, yeah, I mean, you know, would, but, um, as, as as great as a uh, winning goal in the Champions League is, winning a goal in the World Cup final does trump it, doesn't it? <laughs> Just it's, about. It's, it's, I mean, the thing is, we've, we've talked about players like in, in this, um, you know, in this podcast so far, we've talked about a lot of players who, you know, had unfortunate injury issues. We talked about Robbie Fowler a, a couple of weeks ago and, and how... You know, probably if he hadn't have had those injuries, he might have scored 350 League goals or something. The kind of rate he was going at those first three years. Um, so it's always a pity. But I mean, the thing is, he is a Dortmund legend still. He's very much loved uh, there. I mean, I follow Dortmund's socials, and um, they're one of those clubs who are very, very attached to their like loyal players and funny enough Michael Zork who is one of the attacking midfielders of this team is their sporting director um to this day and you know and he's one of the the great cult heroes of the yellow wall still Michael Zork he's he's absolutely beloved um so they they very much have that affinity for their former players I think I've seen Paul Lambert say actually that every time he goes back there like he, he he's never had to buy a drink in Dortmund Zork uh, is one of their top scorers in a lot of these seasons, despite playing from midfield, because he just had that tremendous ability to take a penalty. So he was often uh, often given that responsibility. And just as a mark of the esteem that he was held in, I think he was bought on with the game dead anyway, effectively. But uh, it's one of it, probably one of his last. Um, uh, contributions for, for Dortmund in this Champions League final they bring him on at 89 minutes which uh, again just goes to show the respect I think he was held in by the team at the time absolutely absolutely I mean and the fact that he ends up becoming uh, you know becoming an executive as well I mean it's 
just kind of shows you that kind of family club ethos that kind of Dortmund's and, and indeed many Bundesliga clubs have. No, definitely. I mean, we've talked about pretty much all this team now, but what we haven't touched on is the uh, the wingbacks, which I guess is the big the big role. I mean, these guys were, were the wide men. You know, they were the wide men at the back. They were the wide men up top. You know, apart from Muller dropping into wherever he fancied at any particular time, I mean, you're not going to stop him, are you? Uh, what do we think of the, the, these two? You've got, um, on the left, you've got um, Heinrich, and on the right, Reuter. So, you know, Reuter, obviously, big, big career. Um played for Munich, played for Juventus, played for Dortmund. So, you know, you're talking about uh, 69 caps for Germany as well. Yeah, he he spent a lot of time out there or on, in that position. And did he play a bit central as well at points? I just, I just looked at his Wikipedia, right? I didn't realise this, but he's run an 11 second 100 metres. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> rapid. Like, that's incredible. You know, that's kind of, that's absolutely bonkers. Um, and I do certainly remember him charging up and down the touchline, but, I, I, you know, I wasn't, wasn't quite aware of that. It's funny, isn't it? Because Germany has always produced great fullbacks. And, um, you know, uh, the period just before that, they'd obviously had Andy Bremer, who was one of, I mean, really probably in the conversation, one of the best fullbacks ever. Um and that kind of ability to kind of get up and down and swing the crosses in and, you know, and actually do things like, you know, bang a free kick. You know, these kind of all-purpose German fullbacks that can do absolutely everything. I mean, Philip Lahm ends up being another one, doesn't he? Um, Christian Zieger was another one like that, you know. And, and actually, I think Reuter, I think, takes Zieger's place in the German national setup. I think Zieger kind of has a few inconsistent performances and I think Reuter kind of takes his place if I remember rightly yeah I mean you know a fantastic player again it's almost like I said again about Muller isn't it where you know you could stick him in in any position in the attacking you know in the attacking third and you could say the same about uh, Reuter in the defensive third and a lot of these guys you know obviously Bremer is or like you say, one of the greatest fullbacks of all time. And, you know, Ziga was an, another one of those players that you could just, you know, you, you think about him now, you're picturing him running up and down, you know, nonstop. The energy these guys have is is insane. But, yeah, I mean, strong, strong player to have in your team, 100%. You know, you don't, you don't go to the, the Champions League final, you know, you can't really carry anyone to get there and there's quality all over the pitch. You wonder sometimes if, although we said about how they, Germany had to modernise its style as they went on to, to have the success they've had in the 21st century. But one of the things about that old traditional style with the three at the back and the sweeper is that the fullbacks couldn't be just another pair of defensive players. They had to be all rounders and, I think that's one of the things that it's given to modern football. You know, the, the modern fullback is in some ways a descendant of the German wingback um, because yeah, they were, they were total athletes and they weren't just, uh, what was it? Carragher said, players who, you know, the right, this, this isn't a right back in Stefan Reuter, who does a failed right winger or a failed center back. You know, he was not a failure at anything. 
Uh, and that's kind of where we've gone subsequently. Whether you're playing four at the back or three at the back doesn't seem to matter. So in, while it, football's modernised in some ways, this is a, a legacy of that old style that survives with us to this day. And on the other flank, Heinrich, I mean, he signs not long before uh, this Champions League win, I think. It comes in from Freiburg and costs them a million quid. I mean, that's a bit of a steal, isn't it? And he plays, he's Germany's first choice at the 98 World Cup as well. Obviously, they go out in the quarters to Croatia in that tournament. But, uh, you know, he was, I think he got, what, 52 caps for Germany as well. So, yeah, it's it's certainly, um, this Dortmund team is, is kind of, it's stacked with internationals. You know, Schapuistar was, was one of Switzerland's highest cap players. Um, you know, you've got Kohler, who I think, he might even have over 100 caps for Germany. I've not checked, but I think it must be somewhere in that range. Um, obviously, Sammer had to retire from injury tragically early, but, you know, was uh, the mainstay of that sort of 90, really post World Cup 94 till 98 um, German team. So, yeah, they were a, a team full of experience and, and internationals, and even their younger players were getting capped for their national teams. And, you know, we shouldn't forget Lambert played in two international tournaments for Scotland. So, um, you know, he had a lot of experience of those of those things too. So it was a, um, yeah. I think sometimes when we look at these teams, you know, sometimes it is about the individuals. But this was a great team. You know, they fit together in in such a in such a kind of um, you know in such a kind of intricate way. Like they they all worked for each other and everyone seemed ideally suited to their position. And I think that's why they had the success that they had because in European football in particular, it's, it's a kind of on every, on any given day type of thing, especially once you get to the knockout stages. Um, and they just had that ability to rise to the occasion, as you see from their record quarters, winners, semis across three seasons. So tremendous job. And of course, Hitzfeld, um, one of the great managers, you know. Yeah, I mean, Hitzfeld record speaks for itself. You know, obviously he he'd have the the international stuff. He'd had he he'd go on to win a bucket load with with Bayern as well um, eventually. But you know, he's he's brought Dortmund back to prominence, given them their greatest you know their greatest ever ever achievement. And you know, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure he doesn't have to buy a drink either uh, when he when he goes back there. Although I'm not quite sure. I mean, yeah, Dortmund are used to people going to Bayern, aren't they? So I guess it's not quite the same thing as as crossing North London. It may be slightly different in his case because he was kind of bumped upstairs due to uh, what I've seen described as frictions with the squad. And then not long after, Bayern come and say, no, you're too good to be a director of football. And obviously they get their, uh, what is it, they win four out of five titles in a Champions League when uh, having pilfered him. So that's not a bad uh, record. Does anyone know what the, the story is meant to be? Like why he was, what these frictions are, why he was kind of booted upstairs or is it just something lost to history now he was getting on a bit in years wasn't he i think and you know i think it's one of those things that back in the day um you know people kind of expect you know, expected football managers to kind of you know step upstairs when they got to a certain age well, yeah, i think that's that's more or less what it was okay so frictions is slightly overstating it then that this is uh i'm not sure um yeah, I've not managed to find anything that's particularly, um, yeah, particularly eloquent about about it, really. 
of course there's politics in all boardrooms isn't there yeah, yeah yes. it's pretty it's pretty soon after after this win as well it's not too too long after so obviously uh stuff has started to uh started to, to you know fall fall apart a bit but you know like i say he's gone on to to manage Bayern to, to so many things so i guess uh dortmund's loss was Bayern's gain there yeah and it was, it was funny actually because that Bayern team similarly to this was quite a hard bitten team you know you had effenberg and Mateus. Um, like absolute like, brilliant footballers, but also you know grizzled veterans by this point. Um, Carsten Yanker up top, um, you know big target man, just like Riedler was a big target man. Um, you know they had the wing. Yen, Yen Jeremy's. Yeah, they had the wing back running around. Yeah, they had the the defensive midfielders. Yeah, kicking people and um, oh goodness me, name escapes me. Number ten. Oh, Mehmet, uh, Mehmet Scholl. Scholl. was the guy that yeah. was, uh, you know, pulling the strings. Uh, so, yeah, it was interesting that both of his, his, his uh, successful German club teams were, were a pretty similar makeup to each other. Yeah, he obviously had his way of playing and um, that, that's what he wanted. He got the right players in, they're going to do the job. So, yeah, Dortmund, I think it's, we've kind of had a good uh, chat here about pretty much everybody in the side that uh, certainly in the the Champions League the kind of a final side that, that came through. And it's, uh, again, it's, it's one of those teams that has just stuck with me for all these years. Let's uh, bring this one to a close then by last kind of sum, summing, summing up thoughts about what Dortmund meant, why they still matter uh, what's the, what are your real memories of this team? I yeah, first of all, you can't talk about Dortmund, especially the '97 Dortmund, without talking about that kit. Yeah, you know, <laughs> if you you know, you might not have been a fan, you might not have known who they were before then, but the moment you see that kit, you're like, oh, okay, he is interesting, and you know, that it, it draws your attention when you know, especially when you're a youngster, you're like, oh, that's interesting, and you know. They got some fantastic footballers in there, you know. Some already known to you, some are new and exciting, and you know, you couldn't help but root for them. You know, as much as you'd say, yeah, you look at that final and say that you know they were the underdog. You look at them playing United over two legs, didn't matter who United were playing over two legs, you wanted them to lose. So you know, uh, that at that time, and you know, they're a team that you automatically get behind and then when you start watching them you just find them very likable you know Muller's fantastic Samer's fantastic you've got this lovely system going on they'd score goals and you know it's it's a team and and I'm guessing you know that's kind of the way Dortmund are now you know you never really stop they're a hard team not to enjoy you know, when you look at later eras with, with the Klopp era and they've always seen, whenever I've watched Dortmund over the years, they've always had something about them that makes them really likable and you just want to root for them. And, you know, this was probably the first first Dortmund team that, you know, caught my attention. And, you know, it, it's it's held on since then. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been a, a fan ever since, to be honest. It's like, you know, I guess you all have your, everyone has your... Uh 
foreign sides that you uh, feel an affinity to. And I, I felt that for Dortmund instantly, not least because they were playing Man United in a quarterfinal, and abs- a Man United side that I absolutely despised. And, um, you know, I took great joy in that 2-0 aggregate win of Dortmund's there. And as Matt said, you know, the kit, the the home grounds with the massive south stands, um, the yellow wall, just, you know, those kind of bright yellow kits with a continental sponsor. Uh, they just, and, you know, European um, competitions felt very much like a closed shop of lots of Italian teams uh, over the previous 10, 15 years. And, and, and this was a, a real kind of gate crusher. And, you know, I've, I've followed Dortmund ever since. And, you know, uh, the Klopp era, that's probably one of my, my favourite football, you know, favourite football teams um, ever. And um, I've got Dortmund shirts in my, uh, you know, in my wardrobe and follow their results and watch them as much as I can. And, and it all starts with this, with this team that we've talked about today. Um, it's, it's just they feel like a force for good, you know. And maybe that's because Bayern are in the, in the league as well. And Bayern are, you know, that kind of um, New York Yankees, Man United, you know, it's that sort of, oh, God, you always win. You're the most powerful. You've got the most money. And Dortmund are basically the only team in recent times that have really stood up to them. And uh, that's, that's something which is very powerful as well. But, you know, I, I read not so long ago, you know, that they are, at least until um, probably Brexit's ruined this now, but there were a, a large amount of um, English season ticket holders at Dortmund that go every weekend, get, were getting a, a, a cheap EasyJet flight pre-corona and and watching Dortmund's home games. And that's that's incredible, really, when you think about it, that um, that they would have a couple of hundred English people that go to most home games in Dortmund. That really said something about what kind of club it is and the kind of impact they've made on the popular consciousness. Yeah, this is remarkable when you think about it. It's kind of globalisation in action. Um, I could com- concur with both of what you've said about uh, it's great. A lot of it is it's the German side that isn't Bayern and we like that. Uh, we like to see them succeed. Uh, that They beat Man United when we didn't really like them very much. That's obviously a huge part of it. And Andy Cole blazing chance after chance after chance <laughs> wide will stick with me forever. But rather than dwell on that so much, I'm going to add just something else to, to kind of finish us off, which is, for me, German football had, fairly or unfairly, a reputation for being quite negative at the time and this Dortmund side proved that that didn't have to be that way you could play in a very German formation a very German style and still be actually quite entertaining to watch and do all sorts of stuff on on the ball and I'm struck just by how many goals they scored you know Shapuisar was the top scorer this year with 16 I think and it wasn't all just down to him, though, because the year before when they'd won the league, he was out injured for a lot of it. I think he might have done his cruciate or something. And other players picked up the slack. You know, we've already mentioned Karl-Heinz Riedler, who, who goes to, to Liverpool and is 
probably would have had more of a career there if, if Michael Owen hadn't come through and been half his age. But, you know, he comes through with a lot of goals and was a consistent goal scorer. Moller would step up. We haven't even mentioned Tycho Herlick, who was a pretty consistent goal scorer before he reinvented himself as a football manager in, in more recent years. So, yeah, I think that's my abiding memory. It's, it's, if they're a force for good, it's because they were a good watch deep down. And that matters as much as who they were not in some senses. Uh, I just love the fact that they had that many goals, that many creative players in the side and watching a Zama or a Mala holding court, knowing that there was those players like a Hurlick or a, you know, Shabwisar or Riedler or Ricken to, to put a ball in the end of the net. I mean, in many ways, that's just what football is, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. They were a, a, a tremendous team and, um, and I think you, I mean, it's just it's interesting that you said that, Pete. Like fairly or unfairly, the way that, that um, German teams have been perceived, I think it was very much unfairly and, and very much a, a consequence of, um, you know, very much a consequence of English leftover Second World War nonsense. Really, when you think about that 1990 uh, and the 1986 German teams, they were stacked with goal-scoring strikers and creative wingers and dynamic central midfielders and they played tremendous football um i think people wanted to believe that they were just cynical winners but you could only really pin that on the 1982 german team really um you know the famous uh, assault on uh, patrick battiston by uh, by tony schumacher which has obviously gone down in infamy but um you know the german teams of of the late 80s um, through to the mid-90s were uh, absolutely brilliant football teams. Like, just, you know, there's no coincidence they had the success they had. It wasn't just because they had this sort of mythical German branding of being winners. You know, that takes you so far. But they were really, really, really good footballing sides. They just weren't Holland, you know? That's the thing, is that everyone... Everyone wants Holland to win everything because they represent the romance, I suppose. But, you know, they're too busy fighting each other to win. <laughs> whereas, the, <laughs> whereas, the, uh, whereas the German sides uh, weren't fighting each other and that's probably why they won. Well, yeah, I mean, that's it at the end, isn't it? You know, that, that's the difference is that winning mentality is great as so many of those Dutch teams were. You know, it, 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 they could never do it, you know, Euro 88 aside uh, at that top level and it always just just fell short and you know where 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 the those German teams came through is even when they they weren't as good they still had that that winning mentality and and would push it all the way to the end you know even like in 02 when you know nobody was in the same ballpark as as the Brazilians and all the big teams were were, were falling falling to the wayside you know Certainly not a not the biggest vintage Germany side of all time, but you know, still got to that final. Yeah, which is the one bright kind of oasis really between this side that we're talking about, this Dortmund side and the the German Euro '96 side that was that was so Dortmund esque at times, and the great 2006 run to the the semi final where they really start to put the the feelers down to to the modern team. Uh, they don't they don't have a lot either side of that. They're going on to a bit of a dark winter mm. for a few years uh, either side. They, but... just got, they just got old, didn't they? I mean, essentially, they they had that that 
1990 team basically you know uh, you know they still have players from that 1990 side in their 98 world cup squad which is amazing when you think about it they just clung mm. on that bit too long and they didn't have the talent coming up to replace them and that's why they go into that tailspin for a little while until you know they reinvented the youth system and you know and then you get the your Mullers and your Urzels and your uh, Gertzes and everybody else that takes them on. One of the parallels they have with England during that period is that they are slightly guilty of that if we just run a little bit harder, try a bit more, we'll win. There's that that is a part of German football culture too and they moved to get rid of it far quicker than England did which is why they had a recent World Cup and we don't. Um, <laughs> yep. it, you know, they, uh, they, they, they needed to go through the horrors of being beaten by Kevin Keegan's England which really should scar <laughs> any serious footballing nation. They needed to go through that to, um, to recover and uh, they recovered brilliantly. I'm sure at some point we will talk not just about the World Cup winning team uh, that 2006 side I mean that's such a great story but we're getting ahead of ourselves uh, unless there's any last thoughts I say we wrap this up here let's, go, let's wrap it up yeah alright well that's uh, been great fun to look back on this Dortmund side uh, we're looking at the same sort of period next time out but it's going to be a very different experience as we're taking a look at Joe Royal's Dogs of War the one thing that we've got in common is that we're doing Midnight East Sides that beat Man United uh, but so yeah if that's your bag you want to hear about how Man United lost again then join us for that one and uh, we'll see you again soon oh, I can't wait to talk Uncle Nev bring it on 